Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. more peaceful since the revolution. It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Welcome back to Still Watching The Mandalorian. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm fellow writer Anthony Bresnikin. We are here to talk about the uh, Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian. This is a podcast where every week, Anthony and I check in with each other about the latest episode. This week, we are talking about chapter two, which is titled The Child. And we will be spoiling nothing beyond chapter two, The Child. But make sure you've watched up through Chapter two, the child, before you dive into this podcast, because we will be talking all about the plot and everything that happens. The very, the very title, the child is a spoiler. So there you go. (laughs) It's true. It's true. For episode one or chapter one. As we're recording this, the the title is currently not on the Wikipedia for uh, The Mandalorian because it is a secret. So there you go. Mm -hmm. But we can say it because we have seen it. Um, this episode was written by John Favreau and directed by Rick Famuyiwa, and uh, it takes place on a mysterious desert planet. But we have some thoughts and suspicions about what planet it could be. Uh, it could possibly be. Um, and the the plot is pretty simple. You know, the Mandalorian uh, has acquired the titular child, who he calls the kid. So, I mean, Anthony called the this little being a uh, shamrock shake. Last week, and I, and I really liked that, but it looks like in universe, they're kind of calling it the kid. The kid. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, his, yeah. it was just something about his, the, the fresh, spongy texture of this baby Yoda's <laughs> skin had that minty milkshake look about him. And, uh, you know, the little fuzzy hair, cause the hair is kind of, it still looks like little old man hair, but it's like white and curly. Yeah. And so he just looked like a little froth, a little bit of whipped cream on top. So. <laughs> I still think of him as a shamrock shake. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, so the Mandalorian has this, has this child, this bounty, this kid, and, uh, he's trying to take it back so he can get, uh, his reward. And, uh, instead some Jawas have come along and stripped his ship and he needs to go on a mission for, for them to get 
you know, the pieces of his ship back so he can leave the planet. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about what happens, but that's the plot. It's pretty simple. And, and what is sort of unfolding, uh, as we're watching the Mandalorian, it seems like there's going to be maybe little adventures of the week, uh, that the Mandalorian is going to go on while, uh, maybe pursuing this overarching story about this particular, uh, minty green, uh, bounty that he has been saddled with. <laughs> It's like he has side missions, right? He's got to complete certain tasks in the in the game to to get back to where he's going. Correct. Uh, this episode has some kind of big revelations for such a simple plot, and we'll get to all of that as well. Uh, but first, before we get into all of that, we want to uh, read some of your emails. So we're going to read some emails. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the plot. And then, Anthony, who do we have as an interview on this podcast this week? We have the man with no name himself, Pedro Pascal. Pedro is here. I mean, he was here. We interv- we interviewed him a couple weeks ago, but you will hear him talking, actually talking pretty um pertinently about the impact this little little green thing has on the Mandalorian mm-hmm. and uh and and what what that could ch- like how it could change the course of this person's life. So, um you know, no spoilers once again beyond this episode, but we will be speaking with Pedro at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. And thanks to him for the trust in letting us uh, pick his brain a little about the being, the child, and, uh, you know, trusting that we wouldn't spoil that in advance. But now's the time to talk. So we're going to have Pedro opening up about it. Um, we also got a bunch of emails from you guys, as I mentioned. Thank you guys for, we got so many emails. Thank you guys for all of your emails. We really appreciate it. If you want to email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, um, I think I said something wrong. It was my turn this week, but oh, no. I don't remember what it was. So if, if that correction occurs to me, I will, I will let you guys know what I said wrong, but I forget it right now. Um, but, uh, we're going to start with this email from Suma. Suma wrote in, uh, Thanks for the great podcast. In the scene as the Mandalorian is entering, this is about episode one. In the scene as the Mandalorian is entering the armorer's workshop on the wall above the archway, there is a metallic object that looks a lot like a stylized general grievous head. What's this about dying to know? Um, before we get into the answer, Anthony, do you want to tell people who don't know who general grievous is uh, in the first place? Yeah. General grievous was a character from the prequel trilogy, uh, turned up in, uh, revenge of the Sith, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he, um, he was an alien who clearly had been through a lot of battle damage, but had, uh, he had a terrible hacking cough, General Grievous. <laughs> and, uh, I think his lungs had been burned or something, but he was sort of a, uh, a foreshadowing of what Anakin Skywalker would become. This organic being kept alive by mechanics. And so he was known as a Jedi Slayer kind of a badass from the uh the the end of the prequel trilogy um and uh you know he would have he had four arms and he had a whole bunch of lightsabers so he would pop out with four lightsabers at once and go whirling around until he met his end uh but he did have a kind of weird metallic skull-like mask over you know we never really saw the, the soft little alien wounded inside uh but, but he <laughs> uh uh you know he wore this sort of mask a helmet life support system and, uh, you know, the reader is, is incorrect. It's not General Grievous's face or mask. Look, I mean, looking at General similar. Grievous, you can see where, you know, this listener got the idea. Absolutely. But not a bad comparison. Like, yeah, no, but, but yeah. it's actually something different. 
Yeah, if you if you go ahead and Google Mythosaur, uh, which gets a mention in episode one, um, when Nick Nolte's uh, character, you know, is chiding the Mandalorian for not writing a blurg, and he's like, "Your people once rode the great Mythosaur," you know, so mm-hmm. it's a myth a Mythosaur skull uh, hanging above the armor shop, not General Grievous. And Mythosaurs are kind of like galactic dragons, really. Um, I- they have the same place in Game of Thrones mythology. I know now we're in we're entering your territory here. So, oh yeah, <laughs> yes. You know where there aren't they don't really seem to be around. Just the name itself, Mythosaur, like implies something that once was or maybe is a legend. But the you'll notice the Mandalorians have this uh, this thing on a lot of their uh, their pennants and flags. Uh, this is the the mark of their tribe. So uh that is that is what is going on there. It's sort of a hey, you're entering a Mandalorian sort of uh, structure here. Um, yeah. Do you think I'm, am I making a good comparison there? Like the Mythosaur is to Mandalorians what dragons are to uh, Targaryens. Well, dragons, yeah, and what dragons were, especially before they came back, mm-hmm. right? You know what yeah. I mean? This sort of like, did they ever really exist? We don't know. Were how big were they? We don't know. Sort of thing. So, I mean, it's in the title, Mythosaur. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's what it is. So, anyway, that's that was a, a, a good question, um, but not uh, what we're looking for. But. Uh, we did get an email from Monica who writes in about, uh, droids, why the Mandalorian hates the droids. We were, we were talking about that. The Mandalorian is obviously a bit prejudiced and bigoted towards droids. Um, I speculated the droids are stealing everyone's jobs, but, uh, Monica has a, a better <laughs> answer. Um, she writes, uh, you both mentioned in passing that you weren't sure why the Mandalorian expresses a clear prejudice against droids more than once in the series premiere. And I was curious about the same thing. Based on the timeline, is it possible that he grew up during the Clone Wars? In the flashback in Episode 1, which I think we're assuming is him as a child with his parents, there are super battle droids in the background. That's correct. Yes. Could his parents have been killed by an army of droids, leaving him with a massive droid-related trauma and prejudice? It seems plausible. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Racism against droids has been a prominent recurring theme in Star Wars, i.e. we don't ha- serve their kind here. And with the and the discussion about class disparity... And the discussion about class disparity in Solo with um, L-337 as a woke droid. I'm interested in how they're going to continue to tell that story in The Mandalorian. Thank you so much for the podcast and for your time. So, yeah, that's a that's a really good point that Monica makes that in this purge event, which we still don't know the full story of, um, you definitely see these uh, droids in the background um, carrying out uh, the work of the Empire, we can presume. So... Um, yeah, that, that's enough to, to, to give someone a prejudice, I suppose, right? I guess, and we see, you know, we do see that in the flashback. We do see those droids torturing and destroying things, and you, you can gather why somebody would dislike them. You know, yes, every droid absolutely. going forth then is that droid. Right. The one that caused grief for your family. Um, we should, uh, we should mention, so we are recording this on Thursday because we got to, we each got to go to, uh, in our respective cities, an event where they showed three episodes of The Mandalorian. Um, and before they showed those episodes, um, and like I said, we're not going to talk about episode three yet, but before they showed those three episodes, uh, a friend of the pod, Ash Crossan, did a great Q&A with, uh, the cast and directors and John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Um, and I, I, I just wanted to talk to you really quick. You got you got to see it live. I got to see it simulcast. But um, I just want to talk to you about one moment in particular during that Q and A, if you don't mind. Yeah, and I'm so glad you gave a shout out to Ash. She is a, a friend of this uh, podcast, and uh, <laughs> uh, 
uh, I was so, I don't know. It's just weird when you have a, a colleague out there. Uh, I hate to say like, I feel proud of you. Like, like I did, like I did something. I'm not like a, but I'm a, a proud, uh, uh, friend of Ashes and her work and to see her moderate not just this, uh, panel last night but the one a couple of weeks ago where it was the the press event for mandalorian like uh she's known as the porg queen because she's a real champion of porgs and porg culture but she uh uh now she's like the the mandalorian queen too the mando queen (laughs) (laughs) yeah to hear kathy kennedy say thanks ash i was like oh okay oh yeah she did a great job too um but one one exchange in particular that um i found both emotionally impactful and interesting is, uh, you know, Ash was asking Bryce Dallas Howard, who directed, um, an episode later on the season about her connection to George Lucas, Bryce Dallas Howard being Ron Howard's daughter. Um, you know, Ron Howard worked with uh, George Lucas on the film Willow, which I think we referenced Willow in the first episode in terms of mm-hmm. a, story, a story about protecting a baby on a journey sort of thing. For sure. Um, but, uh, you know, the, that Bryce grew up sort of around George Lucas, obviously Ron Howard directed solo so sort of what bryce's connection to george and all of that was and bryce talked about it a little bit but mostly she threw it over to dave and was talking about some of the stuff that we've been talking about about how dave filoni is truly this sort of heir to george and um you know she says something about how george talked about dave filoni and, and thinking of him as a son which you know and then the camera you were watching it live but i was watching it simulcast and the camera like zoomed in on dave's face oh really it was like registering this moment yeah it was a it was a lot that was going on but um she said something really interesting about uh george is passing on the knowledge um and i just thought that that was interesting in terms of maybe some of the things we've talked about the presence of this Yoda species being and how George has, George Lucas has in the past said that Lucasfilm could not use that particular race of creature, but that perhaps in this project that is so important to Dave, maybe he's allowing them access to a corner of the universe that he has sort of kept to himself. And he's passing it on to Dave, like, and allowing Dave to pass it on to all of us, you know? I don't know if I'm, like, over over extrapolating from what Bryce was saying, but that kind of seemed, like, part, at least partially an interpretation of what she was saying. And he, um, I don't know if we were able to play any of the audio, but then, you know, he talked about how much this meant to him, and he said, uh, I wish, I wish my father was here to see this. Ugh, yeah. And that really yeah. got to me, not just knowing Dave, and, you know, I, I knew that his father passed away and uh um but i was sitting with my daughter who's 10 and she like squeezed my hand and she was like well you're here you know so like (laughs) that made me feel good oh Um, wow you know to take her and see it you know that's a big part of what uh star wars is i know there's a lot of talk about fandom and toxic fandom and what's good fandom and what why this means so much and why people geek out so much and in such depth about star wars and I think it's because it, it is uh, a part of our lives in ways that have deep layers. You know, it's your brother that you watched the original movies with or your sister that you played with and uh, shared comics with or your cousin or your uncle or your aunt or your grandma or whoever it was that like took you to see these movies and shared them with you and shared the toys and shared the books and shared the stories and played along with you, your best friend, your worst enemy, whatever. <laughs> like, like it... Um, it really does become a not just a piece of entertainment, but a part of the texture of the lives we lead. And it was amazing, too, to hear not just that emotional moment from Dave and from Bryce Dallas Howard, but then, you know, 
Werner Herzog, who's yeah. not known, who's not necessarily like, I, I mean, a brilliant, fascinating guy, but not the most touchy feely person talking about this is the role of mythology in your life. And, you know, you very rarely go back to ancient <laughs> times. You find something like this, uh, but it's very rare to find in the modern era stories like this <laughs> with such depth and feeling. And I enjoyed every minute of it. And it's like, okay, even Werner Herzog is geeking out, you know, and it, he kind of famously gave an interview last week where he was like, I wasn't nervous about working with John Favreau. I've, don't know any of the movies he's made <laughs> and, like, and yet here he was able to enjoy um enjoy the uh the you know the fun and the play of star wars while also recognizing what we project onto it you know a movie is projected onto a screen a tv show is projected out from your tv but there's so much that's projected within us onto these stories and uh that's why they mean so much uh, it was really that was a great conversation Absolutely. And it was um, the other thing that I that I did want to mention, I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I think it was interesting that Werner used the, the word cinema, because this mm -hmm. has become such a charged oh, word right. around like, popular entertainment, and what is what is cinema and what is popular entertainment. And Werner is like making the case that, you know, this is definitely can be both. Sorry. But um, another listener, uh, Kathy, sort of in a, in a different channel, not an email, um, sort of raised this question to me about a lot of us, including a lot of people on that stage, uh, you know, at this Q&A, uh, talk about how Star Wars is part of our childhood, about part of how we grew up, about how exploring the Mandalorian is so fun for those of us who have lived with Star Wars for so long. Um, but her question was like, well, okay, what about people who are new to the fandom? Mm. Um, and uh, something that I thought was interesting is um, Ash was asking Dave Filoni in that Q&A, um, you know, what can you basically, you know, what do we need to know about the Mandalorian cultures, um, or, or the, the story of Mandalore, which is explored in the, in the Clone Wars and, um, Rebels, the animated series that Dave Filoni worked on. She, she's like, what do we need to know? And he was like, nothing. And I think that's so important. He's like, there's no barrier of entry as far as they're concerned for the show. Like, you know, you and I are, are doing our level best and people all around the internet who know way more than either of us combined about Star Wars are doing their level best to sort of point out these cool little Easter eggs and references. But like, I think what is important for the future of Lucasfilm as you know, what, who they want to be, um, is they want to be a place that's friendly to newcomers, to new, new fans. And so I think that they're trying really hard to make a show that you can latch onto. And, and I think this episode in particular is a really good example of that, where you don't really have to know anything. The story could not be simpler. And in fact, there is so little dialogue in this episode. Mm -hmm. And so it could almost operate as a silent film, you know, and you're just, you, you get it. You understand there's like this small thing, this person with like no, um, movable features that we can see has to kind of protect it. And then there's like a clear mission and you don't need to even know what a Jawa is in order to, uh, like, ex you know, enjoy this episode. So mm -hmm. I think, I think that's worth mentioning and, and worth remembering as we talk about the Mandalorian. So. I think that accessibility is so important, and you and I know a lot about this universe and all that, but the a universe that ceases to grow starts to collapse. And I think right. uh, adding people in in new ways, and the Mandalorian will be their favorite character, and this world will be an entry point to them, just as Ray is an entry point for some people, and the new 
trilogy brings folks in and that, you know, I, I, as much as the prequels are derided, uh, by critics and, you know, fans of the original trilogy, I think they, they created generations of fans and, uh, you've got to respect that some people like things that you don't and get things that you don't, but they have to speak in a language that can be, um, I guess recognized and, and, uh, and entertaining to people who are unfamiliar with everything that came before, you know? Right. So, uh, let us talk about this episode specifically, shall we? There's actually, actually one more thing from the premiere that I want to talk about. <laughs> what was it? Yeah. Anthony was like, let's keep this, this episode short. And I'm like, okay, but one you know, more thing. Um, we're going. We got it. We're good. <laughs> um, Something that, that eagle-eyed, uh, viewers of the premiere pointed out, um, is that, uh, the character of Dr. Pershing, who we meet in the first oh, episode, yeah. uh, who's working for the client, right? And he's like, br- he's the one who's like, please bring this bounty, the, the Shamrock Shake, the kid, <laughs> please bring it back alive. Uh, whereas the client, Werner Herzog's character is like, dead or alive, I don't care, bring it back, you know? Um, so some, uh, very, very sharp-eyed folks, uh, on the internet, uh, looked closely at a, 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 like, character still of the Dr. Pershing character, noticed a patch on his arm. And I, when, when I rewatched episode one, uh, last night at the screening, I was looking closely. You kind of can't see it. In the episode, he's keeping that shoulder away from the camera, but on his right shoulder, there's a patch with an emblem on it um, that is worn by all of the clones on the planet Camino. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is like where all the clones were made in the prequel trilogy. Right. And so all it's like a, a marker of of you are a clone. You have this patch. Is that it's correct? Like two Andy? vertical lines, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's was, like a little I. It's like a little I and an L. That's what it looks like to me. Like a like a like the lower uh, a a lowercase the Italian uh, article eel <laughs> like I L. <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. But if you you know if you if you watch the um, the prequel trilogy, um, you know the little Fett clones um, all have this patch are all wearing the same emblem, and so you know you and I had already talked about the idea that like maybe this little being this little kid this 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 shamrock shake uh is a clone and and maybe it is a clone of yoda maybe or maybe something that they want to clone um but you know that cloning is somehow perhaps involved in whatever science uh dr pershing uh is you know Whatever he's sciencing, yeah, he's whatever he's sciencing. (laughs) There's definitely something there. You know, I think that's fascinating because you know we know the empire has fallen, but what experiments was the empire up to? And when the empire collapses, what becomes of that? You know, so it seems like maybe the maybe things just kind of broke open. And um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see where they're going. Whether this means the creature's a clone, whether it's something they want to clone, right? Uh, And 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 what that has to do with rise of Skywalker too. Ooh, well, yes, it's a, it's a good question. And like, uh, someone else pointed out to me that, um, Dr. Pershing's, uh, costume looks pretty similar to what Galen Urso is wearing in Rogue One. And that just, it's just like a science officery, an imperial science officery costume. Well, you know what I mean? So, um, that's, you know. And it's that, blue and white, which was the colors of the, what were those long, the Kaminoans, the, uh, yeah, the long necked, uh-huh. lanky yeah. looking alien type creatures. 
the cloners. Similar, yeah. similar to the outfits they wore. So something that you um, mentioned when we very first talked about Werner Herzog's character, the client, back in our preview episode, um, was the comparison you made to uh, this character after the Empire's fallen, but still wearing sort of an imperial insignia and and being protected by stormtroopers is it's like a Nazi who has fled to Argentina, right. uh, but is still wearing like Nazi regalia. And I'm like, okay, so are we like expanding that to some sort of, I don't know, eugenics kind of ideal you know nazis were interested in eugenics Mm -hmm. uh the empire interesting in cloning that's just you know these are all things to keep in our minds as we go forward he seems Uh, like a a warlord on the make like all he's got are these (laughs) scrappy little stormtroopers right now but it seems like he's trying to build up something and uh get a little power back Something that I hadn't noticed, uh, in the first time I watched the episode, uh, was that Dr. Pershing, uh, in, in that first episode, his lips are very, like, dry and chapped. Like, he just doesn't look well, uh, is what I'll say. That, like, I've, you know, I've seen that actor in other things. He's, he's looked healthier in other, in other <laughs> roles. And so, like, you know, he just, he looks like he's not, he's not maybe being treated super well. That's not his thing. Like, oh, get us a chapped lip deck. <laughs> <laughs> that guy with looks like he really has got you know some wind burn going on yeah uh, no he definitely seems like they, they seem like they're in desperate circumstances they, yeah. they they've been through some things and uh, what i loved uh you know in the broadcast from the premiere uh herzog said something like i'm gonna misquote but he said i knew when they told me that the character was uh dark and unpleasant and untrustworthy, it would be easy to play. <laughs> like I, I may be slipping a little more into Arnold Schwarzenegger than Werner Herzog with that, but he um, he definitely is relishing the evilness of the mysterious client. And um, I have one thing to add that yeah. I don't think made it onto the show, onto the presentation, onto uh, the simulcast, because uh, after they ended it and they like just but right before they start the movie they have to like pack up the stage and get the chairs and all that off and yeah. so dave filoni and john favreau walked out and uh the curtain came down and they told one additional story about shooting with the animatronic baby yoda the little puppet shamrock shake and they said you know they were they felt pretty confident about the animatronics that they had but they weren't sure how it would read on camera so they would shoot with the puppet and then shoot a clean plate without the puppet in the basket so that they could maybe create a digital effect later if need be. And that when Werner Herzog saw this, and they expl- he's like, why, why are you not shooting with the, uh, with, with the puppet? You know? And they're like, <laughs> explained it, and he goes, you're cowards. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. So let us talk about this episode, this, this little adorable puppet that just gets cuter with every frame. Uh, something very, you know, I had sort of mentioned to you the, the episode one ends with, uh, the shot of the Mandalorian sort of like reaching out and the little, the little tridactyl hand of the, of the little kid reaching out to touch him and the, and the crib floating. And I was like, this bassinet is floating. And I was like, uh, later after we recorded the episode, I was like, Oh my God, Anthony, am I so stupid? Was it floating because of the force? And you're like, I just thought it was a space bassinet and me too. Um, and I think we learned this episode. I mean, the force is definitely a thing in this episode and we will talk about it. But, uh, there's a, there's a moment when the kid is in danger 
And the Mandalorian makes this like gesture with his arm that sort of moves the bassinet really quickly out of harm's way, um, which makes me think he is like Bluetooth paired his, uh, you know, his gauntlet or whatever with the bassinet. So this seems to be like, it's not the kid controlling where the bassinet goes. It's linked to the Mandalorian in some way. It's a hover. Yeah. It's a hover bassinet. Yeah. Um, but yeah. We do see a little force power come out of that little. We, we see a lot of force critter. power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it starts with like one of the first things we see is the Mandalorian trying. You know, it's a very, a very. We've talked. We'll talk about Western influences throughout, but this is a very Western moment, right? The campfire, mm-hmm. nighttime campfire, campout scene, and he's trying to heal himself. You know, with a little uh, device, and we see this little baby try a couple times. To use, the, you know, we know what the baby's trying to do. It seems like the Mandalorian doesn't. He's just like, ah, oh, out of the bassinet again, back of the bassinet with you, sort of thing. Um, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's a don't use the force on me moment. I think it's a like, I had, I don't understand what you're up to here, what you're trying to do. It's like you know? me, me chasing the cat out of the room it's like, <laughs> right, right before we recorded this. You, oh, you get out, come on, get out of here, get back <laughs> in that bassinet. <laughs> um, but, but what was the little guy trying to do? Um, because he's reaching out to touch this wound that the Mandalorian has, but do you think he was like going to heal it? Yeah. Force heal. That's what I think. Force heal. Did we ever, is that a thing? We, have we ever seen that? I never, like, I the, is it like E.T. where E.T. would touch you and heal you? Like, <laughs> you, you never, know, I just, I just assumed that force healing was a thing. <laughs> hey, is it not? <laughs> I mean, I never saw Yoda do that, right? Yeah, I guess not. Uh, so that's, that's a question for all of you listeners. Is force healing a thing? I mean, if you can move things with your mind, couldn't you like knit flesh back together with your, with the force? I, you know, especially a, that, that was just a, that was just a a flesh wound. Merely just a scratch. (laughs) Maybe, but I think that's setting up something in the future is that we're going to see a character, uh, reach the, reach a crisis point maybe you know and be seriously hurt and just when you think all hope is lost here comes the human oh, power of the shamrock shake of the shamrock shake <laughs> gotta re- pour a little shake to, on it to, to rejuvenate you with its minty freshness <laughs> um excellent yeah that's a that's a good that's a good point that that is classic storytelling right is is see this moment in early the potential for force healing to use it when it really counts later. Um, but we get that payoff even in this episode, right? Um, later on. Um, but as we mentioned, the, the Mandalorian heads back to his ship with his bounty and it has been stripped and there is a bunch of Jawas there. Jawas, uh, who you may recognize if you have seen A New Hope, uh, the, the very first Star Wars film and or, uh, Spaceballs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but these are, I mean, would you call them a, sc- a scavenger race sort of thing? You know? Um, look, I hate to say it. I always thought they were, I would have said before this, like scavenger race, nomadic tribal creatures, whatever they are. I think after watching this, we have to face the unpleasant fact that Jawas are the dirt bags of the galactic <laughs> universe. Of, like these are the dirt bags of Star Wars. They're not just. Like scavengers implies, like you know, that they're maybe impoverished, but they're rest. You know, they're right? Just, Ray, like, Ray junk. is a scavenger. Yeah, Ray junk is a scavenger. Man, yeah, 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 yeah. 
These yeah. are like, these guys are boosting your car and taking your hubcaps. <laughs> and like, these, this is like coming back to your car and finding a bunch of punk kids have stripped <laughs> it and are running off with like the radio station or the radio player and the wheels and the, uh, you know, the steering wheel. And, um, you know, the Mandalorian gives chase and then vaporizes a pile of them. <laughs> and like, you realize you don't feel any sympathy for these little creeps. They're the worst. <laughs> they're just, they're thieves and, and, uh, and, and, and jackals. And he realizes uh, he can't quite take everything back from them. So he has to strike a bargain. And, uh, Kuil, is that how we're pronouncing him? I love, I love that pronunciation. Kuil. It feels very extra, so I like it. Yeah. Kuil, the, uh, the little, uh, Ugnat voiced by Nick Nolte, who likes to end everything with reminding us everything he (laughs) says, he reminds us that he says, I have spoken. And, uh, he decides to help the Mandalorian by saying, I'll, you know, strike an, a, a, a sit down with the Jawas and we'll figure out what we can trade in order to, uh, you know, get, get your gear back and get you off of this planet. And what they want is the little baby. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but they can tell that it has some kind of power and there's something cool about it. And the Mandalorian will not give this up. And, uh, yeah. and then they decide they want something else. Right. So they want the egg, uh, as they mentioned a couple times. Um, I want to really quickly zoom back, uh, and just say quickly, first of all, it, it appears as though the Mandalorian's, like, cool looking weapon that he has is some sort of, like, lethal tuning fork. It feels like he, like, it, like, vibrates and then they vaporize. That seems to sort of, like, what, what we see there. Yeah. Um, it's not really uh, yeah. like a blast that comes out of it, right? Right. It yeah. send a bolt. It just sort of, it just sort of makes you burst. Yeah, so it feels like a sonic sort of thing. And then, um, you know, if you, if you're looking for Western references, this, this chase, this, where he's trying to get on their sand crawler, uh, which is their vehicle, right? Uh, is, is like, is like a classic sort of train chase. Um, and there's yeah. even a, even a part where it's, it's like a classic, the train's going through the tunnel moment or, Indiana Jones is stuck on the side of a Nazi tank. In, I, that's uh, what Valley I was of- <laughs> thinking of in uh, The Last Crusade. Yeah, the Valley of the Crescent Moon or something like that. So, uh, you know, a, a very familiar uh, setups for, a, you know, an unfamiliar world. And um, so we get all that. And then there's also like the visual of um, Kuli as Kuli as he's, um, or Kuil, sorry, Kuil as he's taking the Mandalorian to talk to the Jawas on like a Blurg drawn carriage, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just all very, like, very Western, uh, is, is how these things look to me. So, uh, and then there's some funny bits with the Mandalorian's bad, uh, Jawaese or whatever. Uh, yep, Jawaese. Wow. I guessed it. And that is what they speak. Jawaese. Um, like they're like you sound like a Wookiee, and they're laughing at his bad uh, attempts to speak their language and stuff like that. It's pretty cute. And then we get this fight. Um, we get this fight where he's fighting something um, that we know is called a mudhorn, which is not a creature that has existed in Star Wars before. Um, it looks there have been like rhinoceros esque characters in Star Wars before, but this is a new one. It's very hairy. Um, and it's got a very hairy egg, which is a little creepy. Um, my yeah. my daughter said it looks like it's covered in ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it yeah. does. <laughs> yeah, it's like mud and ramen noodles. But um, and yes. This, and let's say it has to be said, the mud horn, really the horn uh, 
is this thing must have serious neck problems as it gets older. <laughs> like the horn, the horn is just a lot. That's yeah. a lot. That's the that's the horniest. Well, I should, probably shouldn't say that. But that's a that is a creature with uh that's like ninety percent horn. Like I don't know how it walks or how it do how it defies gravity to get around, and it beats the hell out of the Mandalorian with it. Yeah, and his his breastplate is like up by his ear. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's bad. Uh, and the only thing that saves him, uh, is that shamrock shake coming through with the, with the force. Yeah. So, so it's about to finish him off. And then all of a sudden it, it just sort of wriggles in the air and it can't figure out what's going on. It can't get any traction and it's muddy pit. And, uh, the little, the little baby Yoda has, uh, paralyzed it. And then, you know, with like one stab of his knife, the Mandalorian takes out this gross creature. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone knows that you can kill a mudhorn if you stab it behind its ear. Right Do behind the ear. <laughs> I guess so. I just um, thought. Yeah. Right. Something, something shot wise that I really liked in this episode, uh, they do it a couple times, uh, is you get sort of, uh, Shamrock Shake POV. You get uh, the, the cameras inside the space bassinet sort of zooming around, which I thought was a really clever idea. Um, and you know, as if we needed any more help being sympathetic to this adorable little creature. Um, you know, we, here we are, uh, in its POV. So I'll always pay attention to, you know, where the camera is wanting you to feel like you are. And, and it wants us to be with, with this kid, um, as much as possible in this episode. Um, and then the, the force seems to like knock the kid out. It takes a, it takes a snooze afterwards. It really took, Tucker, Tucker that baby out. Um, that show of force. So, and it was, a, it was an impressive show of force. I mean, that was a huge creature and it's just like immobilized, you know? Yeah, that was interesting that it 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 went into like a a slumber, like a yeah. hibernation in a way. Yeah, having used the force, and you know, that's I thought that had a little bit of significance for the new sequel trilogy because do you remember in Rise of Sky or not Rise of Skywalker, The Last Jedi, when um, uh, Kylo and Rey are talking and they're having their force communication, and Kylo says. Who's doing this? It can't be you. The, mm. the exertion of this would kill you. Mm-hmm. Kill, a, kill a person. And then later, of course, we see Luke Skywalker project himself across the galaxy and then vanishes, seemingly depleted by the effort of having accomplished this great feat. And um, I thought that was a little bit of what we were seeing with Baby Yoda, is that lifting this rhino was not going to kill him, but whew, it's like working out. Running a marathon. Well, I think time to have a bowl of spaghetti and take a big nap. (laughs) Well, and from a storytelling point of view, that's a really important thing to build in because you can't like you 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 want to have these little powerful displays of the force, right? Because it's fun. But you but if the Mandalorians traipsing around the galaxy with this thing that can you know is is that powerful? That will make some of the scrapes I imagine he'll get into kind of boring if he can just like, oh, pull the trigger on the baby and get out of there, you know? So like if the baby's occasionally sleeping and can't help, then, you know what I mean? It's like sporadic flashes of the force will make for interesting storytelling. Occasionally, maybe the force will be helpful, but it can't be all force all the time. Does that make sense? Because like, that's a big question of, of introducing the force 
into this show. We weren't sure if the force would be a part of the show at all. Um, I know when they were making Rogue One, initially they wanted to make Rogue One without the force and then they wound up putting Vader in and yada, yada, yada. But like initially they kind of wanted to explore telling Star Wars stories without the force in it. And uh, that is not what they're doing here. The force is definitely a part of it, but like, it, you know, you know what I mean about it's like, it's like a Scarlet Witch in the Avengers, right? She's, technically too powerful to fight any of the other Avengers. And so you have to sideline her occasionally uh, so that, you know, she can't just like mess with everyone's mind and that's the end of every single fight. You know what I mean? So, or the vision, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, okay. So that is what's going on in this episode. We get uh, the stuff back and we fly off. Um, just a couple more quick things before we go to our interview with Pedro. Um, one is... Uh, do you think the presence of the Jawas and the fact that, um, Quill's farm kind of looks like it might be a moisture farm or at least looks similar enough to the farm that Luke Skywalker grew up on that there, it introduces the possibility that this could have taken place on Tatooine? I think it's. I don't, it doesn't feel like Tatooine to me. Um, okay. Is the, gonna, it's, the, it's the mud that disqualifies it from being Tatooine. I don't know. Just the texture. I think of Tatooine as being very sandy and I don't know, maybe. I mean, we, we've uh, often noted that every planet has its own ecosystem. This, this doesn't feel like it, but a lot of the promo materials do show like a little Jawa. Uh, transport and two twin sons and moisture farms, which definitely evokes Tatooine. Right. And I'm thinking maybe they go there later, but this didn't, didn't feel Tatooine to me. Okay. Uh, and I think if they had wanted to make that point, then they could have, but I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, it's a no for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Uh, please Reference email. Uh, from, uh, brought to you by the year 2002. <laughs> and like co- Coca-Cola. I don't yeah. know. What, what is sponsoring our podcast? Um, and, um, and then the last question, are you, I don't know, I don't know this about you, Anthony. Are you a Doctor Who fan? Uh, I'm not, partly because I've never found the entry point. You know, we were talking about you've got to, yeah, you got to find a time to jump aboard the train and it's got to be accessible and, uh, I know everybody loves it. I'm sorry to report I'm not a huge Doctor Who. I'm not, I'm not familiar with Doctor Who. Um, Doctor Who, for me, actually has a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who? Um, this moment at the end of the episode, when the Mandalorian turns to Kuil and is like, uh, you know, you could come with me if you wanted to. Um, I wouldn't mind that, basically. And he's like, no, no, I live here. Thanks so much. Um, you know, uh, it reminded me a lot of the doctor and doctor who the doctor is this like incredibly, you know, impressive, uh, adventurous figure, but fundamentally incredibly lonely and is, you know, the, the supporting characters in any season of doctor who are called companions because he goes around the galaxy and he pulls these like human companions on board his ship with them and goes off and does these adventures. But, but his profound loneliness um, as a man with no planet, which is similar to the Mandalorian, a man, a man with no, no planet, um, 
is part of the driving force of the story. And so I just had the, I had a moment when he like asked this creature who he just met to come with him. It was just sort of like, this is a lonely guy. This is a lonely, lonely guy. And, um, and perhaps, you know, that's, you know, maybe the Shamrock Shake will be able to fill that little, uh, bat wing shaped hole in his heart or something like that. But, um, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that, that moment in particular? The moment of what, like the bonding between them, or what would you? Well, him, him asking Kuil to come with him. Oh, oh, asking him to come with him. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it was handy, right? It's dangerous to go alone, and I think, uh, I also think the Mandalorian doesn't fully trust his feelings about this child, you know. And I think it's sort of like, what should I do here? He needs a Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. And, uh, and Kuil seems like a man of integrity or an Ugnaught of integrity. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when he says, I have spoken, he's very definitive. And I think the, the, uh, Mandalorian would like some of that certainty in his life. So yeah, I think I do get the sense that he'd like a crew. He'd like a gang. Yeah, I just, I think, you know, and, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that's also a theme of, of like the lone gunslingers, uh, in, in Westerns as well. But just this idea of like, um, someone who appears stoic, appears to not really need people that much or whatever, but then you get these flashes of, of vulnerability or the, the weight of their solitude, uh, in what they do. So, um, maybe we can find a friend, friend for the Mandalorian. I wouldn't mind it. Gina Carano is in the cast. Maybe she can be his friend. We'll see. Um, uh, should we go now to, uh, your conversation with Pedro Pascal? Yeah, let's go to it. Let's do it. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show. Love to see it. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So the first thing I want to ask you, I know you've been asked a lot about how you portray emotion when you're playing a masked character, but I want to talk about the voice because I think that voice, uh, it's, it, for me, it conjures Clint Eastwood mm. and the whispered raspy voice he had in a lot of those early Sergio Leone Westerns. I, I know that was an influence for Dave Filoni and John Favreau was, was he an influence for you too in your performance? Oh yeah. The first thing that they told me to study were, um, uh, Akira Kurosawa samurai films and, um, and, and then Sergio Leone's, uh, spaghetti westerns. And, um, and, and they very specifically built this character on those old iconic loan, those loners. It's been a really interesting improvisation in terms of like figuring out what his posture is, um, how he moves, how he walks, how he communicates, how he makes a point and how the voice like exists under the mask. And, um, it's very, um, detail oriented and I can get a little compulsive about details and um 
they've kind of created the perfect opportunity for me to work some of those things out because once we capture the body language on camera um and and obviously the voice being specifically connected to that body language but then we can fine-tune it we can change it we can in in post i mean it's a visual effects show it's an effect it's not, i would i'm sorry it's not a strictly a visual effects show it's an uh an effects show and and as far as i'm concerned the the stars of it are are, are all of the different art departments um <laughs> that go into it sound being one of them and so i guess my contribution feels like a fraction of 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 you know or just one component out of many that 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 create the character and and the world that he's moving through let's talk about that costume then mm-hmm. well again with eastwood just i know this is this is the mandalorian armor we've known since we saw boba fett in the original trilogy mm-hmm. yeah. but that slit of the eyes yeah. it looks like narrowed eyes it looks like a squint doesn't yeah. it yeah it's it's like the the ultimate poker face you know <laughs> um the way that it looks um just you know watching playback of something that we just shot and the you know the language that the design of the costume makes and the way that it's lit you know because so much of the armor is reflective of light is 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 crazy and um they keep on insisting that it isn't just anybody that can make it look as good as it does but i don't believe them yet (laughs) (laughs) how much of your physicality is dictated by the costume by the weight of it by the boots by the armor you're wearing on your body like how much uh sometimes restriction is good and it gives you helps you find a character I would say only about a hundred percent, you know, it's all about like weight distribution and using the design of the costume to, um, you know, uh, share the the character. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's really strange, but not altogether new. Um, it's about like, reintroducing myself to all of that all the all all the things that i learned in class and on stage um i remember doing um commedia dell'arte and um an entire portion of this one play where 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 you know had to do it in in a mask and 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 in a very very animated and exaggerated way you know used the body to tell the story and um this is very much like that in, but 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 in the opposite tone of like economical movements i was gonna say i think you work very eloquently with stillness mm-hmm. as the mandalore yeah what yeah. role does stillness play in depicting his character well that's the thing is that like you kind of figure out a posture and um and and commit <laughs> are you actively thinking like don't move don't move too much don't subconsciously oh yeah moving your hands but like actually find a position where you're go to a bar and stand there and they're taunting you Mm -hmm. is it in your mind consciously like 
to think about every single small movement because a lot of us we're talking we're moving and we move in all sorts of ways that we don't really think about but it sounds it sounds like that was something you had to keep in mind as you were uh, yeah, rolling that's, camera that's like the dominant thing about it really is um figuring all of those details out and um all of the kind of excuse me all of the tricks or 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 habits really that you that you that you um develop um um the way that you hold your head or uh yeah like fidgets don't really work with this character so you have to be hyper vigilant um about that stuff it's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to hear about working with some of these actors. Uh, let's start with Carl Weathers, mm-hmm. who is a larger-than-life character in yeah. his own way. Yeah. Uh, um, but the relationship between the Mandalorian and Grief Karga is something that reminds me of... Uh, uh, it, 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 he, Grief seems, he seems to be looking out for him, but he also seems to be manipulating him in some ways. And I feel like the Mandalorian knows that he's being guided or manipulated he knows not to trust him but how would you describe the relationship between those two and and what was it like working with carl well the 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 whole world that that we're in um with the mandalorian is so kind of unpredictable and um grief karga carl's character is um our best example of uh not knowing what to expect um and uh and not knowing whether or not you can trust a thing um so it's a very kind of classic uh dynamic and uh relationship and um he is an actor that exudes a presence with also very very economical um uh, uh efforts you know um he just has an incredible face and he also knows how to utilize stillness and intimidate and also surprise you with like um empathy and um humanity and um and he's a just a great looking dude you know what i mean like he's just he's beautiful to watch and um and he has and he has such a um you know um he's a pro it's it's a charisma but it's also like a a, a skill and and a, a professionalism you can see how um you know uh how hard he is on himself as well you know what i mean like he definitely won't allow anything to be um not at its full potential and um and it's 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 inspiring uh to be around how about your scenes with gina she's in uh not the first few episodes of the series but later when he comes to encounter her but she's she's tough uh Mm -hmm. cara dune is a, a veteran of the galactic civil war she's been through some things she was a shock trooper they're both tough customers um what were some of your experiences like shooting with her well gina carano's the kind of person that like I wish I've I wish I'd known her my whole life and 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 I'm so glad to know her now um because 
she is capable of being physically intimidating and also um, uh, seductive, mysterious, and also very warm. And um, the effortlessness that uh, of which she is able to like, you know, um, provide that all of those different things is, is, is pretty amazing. Um, she's just a really, really nice person. <laughs> But she's strong, man. She, you yeah. have a fight, a fight sequence yeah. with her. That's why she doesn't need to, uh. So she doesn't have to be mean and personality wise because she's. Yeah. This, as strong as she is, is as nice as she is. She's been a huge, um, part of, uh, of like, um, you know, uh, really initiating all of us into the first floor of this experience, you know? Um, She's been kind of like the heart of the, of the, of the show. And, um, and that makes sense for her character, but it's also, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very like symbiotic relationship between like who she is and who she's playing and, and, um, and centering all of us into the heart of, of what we're doing. So the, the, um, the things that you are able to, to portray or convey to the audience through stillness, um, and economic movements, like it seems like that's those are often more like are, are intimidating emotions, mm-hmm. you know, that he's coiled, that he's you know ready to strike. Uh, you're also called upon to show some tenderness mm-hmm. as this character. How is how difficult is that to portray without the use of subtle facial features? You can believe it as much as you want, and then the challenge is figuring out how to tell that story show. Yeah. How to show it. And, and I think that very little goes a long way. Somebody, um, who never lets their guard down. Um, and then the, 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 it, it can become all about like discovering what is the smallest gesture of, of, of letting his guard down for the first time, um, in front of a, another character or another creature. And, um, and, uh, and, 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 or, or developing, you know, a relationship, um, in, in, in the show and, and how his, his, how his body language basically gradually, you know, starts to, um, let its guard down. Um, so I wouldn't say I have that figured out at all, but it's, 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 it's constantly being like discovered and developed. And are, are you in consultation with your director? Like, well, there's going to be a music cue here that also will help carry some of that load for you or visually. Here's how we're constructing it. Sometimes so that can be like the that. answer to some questions that, 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 that I have and they'll kind of clue me into, Oh, well, you know, we'll, 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 we'll I'll be sweeping in here. I'll be like, you know, I'm moving towards you here and then this music is going to creep in. So don't worry about not knowing how to like convey this moment. You know what I mean? There are so many technical factors that are going to achieve like the emotional tone of it, um, which is hard for me to let go of, you know, it's, it's also, and so then I kind of very privately anchor myself to the story without, 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 you know, it necessarily, um, living past the mask and then just hope that whatever uncontrolled thing that I can contribute is captured, you know, and, 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 and getting that, you know, 
and finding those 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 uh, spontaneous moments. The look of the character, obviously, he's a new character. Uh, Dave and John have said over and over, he's not Boba Fett, but a lot of people will look at that mask, that helmet, they'll see the cape, and that's how we were first introduced to Mandalorian mm-hmm. was through Boba Fett. I'm sure that's what, that's how I grew up. Oh, yeah, what you grew up. Like, tell me about the significance of that image in your mind, personally speaking, as somebody who was a Star Wars fan when he was young. Well, it was a toy that I had when I was a kid. It was like my favorite Star Wars action figure. Him and um, and and a green-headed anteater-looking um, a creature with a uh, with a brown robe. Mm. Would that have been Must Greedo? Have been Greedo. It would have it's had to have been Han Solo episodes. Shot? Yes. Yeah. Exactly the one that Han Solo shot. Greedo. Greedo in the bar. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, as a child. These characters did not stand out for me in, in having seen the movies, but the toys did. They were the toys that I fell in love with and utilized the most. In your own storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. That's what kids mm-hmm. do. Is they yeah. use those characters to tell their own yeah, stories. Exactly. And so and so to, you know, put on a costume that harkens to my experience to one of my favorite toys is really weird. It conjures those emotions of those good times. Absolutely. Right? The birthday or the Christmas or whatever when Absolutely. you got the toy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think is interesting. Very strangely nostalgic and, and, and it activates a very funny, um, uh, uh, bone in the imagination, you know? But it's different. Did they talk about that with you very much? Taking something that looks familiar, but actually making it something different. Why is that? What, 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 what alchemy does that create in? Well, they're breaking new territory. They're, you know, they're, 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 um, they're taking such a familiar world and starting to kind of discover new things almost at the point where you feel like there isn't anything else to discover. And, and that's what's, that's what I'm just kind of amazed by. Um, I don't, I don't know what the answer is in terms of like how to do that, but I can tell you that the opportunity is being provided to discover it anew on a daily basis. And that's pretty crazy. It's, it's challenging because you want answers or you want to know what to anchor yourself to, but really what you have to anchor yourself to is just like being present in this collaborative experience of a whole new a whole new like um chapter in star wars yeah i think it's it's a fascinating combination because you want originality but you're also getting nostalgia yeah very hard to bring those two together they're 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 writing such a fine line between both between the old and the new and those those are kind of like selling points you know in our and you know in our paper of talking points you know what i mean talk about the old and the new and it's easy to do that because it's really what they're doing sometimes i wish some of it was a little more new to be honest with you because it is so physically challenging to capture that that level of quality john is a freak. He was just the other day um, noticing that my boots didn't have the appropriate level of frost. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and then after like a long conversation and I, I couldn't help through my own exhaustion, just be think to myself, you know, now you're just going, now you're, now you're just going crazy. 
you know, I, I, you know, I kept that thought to myself, which I'll now share with the world. And then I walk into my dressing room and the boots had been worked on and they looked exactly like what my boots would have looked like after walking through a blizzard in New York City. And I had to take a picture and send it to him and be like, you might actually be a genius because it's those it's the buildup of all of those details in a world like this where like no stone is un you know what I mean? No stone is unturned. Unturned. And um and 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 you know the collection of all of that into this kind of storytelling is 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 what is really gonna satisfy audiences, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Peter Pascal, for talking to us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. All right, that is it for uh, this episode of Still Watching the Mandalorian. Um, Anthony, until we are back with Chapter 3, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Bresnikan on Twitter and on the website of VanityFair.com. Um, you can find me on vanityfair.com as well you can find me on twitter at joe wrote this uh, and once again if you want to email us anything you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com we love getting your emails we love reading them on air um, and until then until next week uh, I guess we'll see you out in the galaxy I don't know we need a catchphrase I'll think of one bye bye <laughs> that's our catchphrase bye bye <laughs>